1: back on here. What a strong start. Um, Obviously, we've done a ton of episodes. And today we were talking about uh, the asshole cop who used his badge to commit a crime. And really, the kind of the takeaway I got from this, and it may seem an odd extrapolation, or it might just be a simplification as my normal rah-rah America. But to me, it really drove home the point of like the importance of the Second Amendment. And we'll get all to it. But it was what really what it drove home to me was is like in the end, like, you have to take care of yourself. It's There are an overwhelming majority of good cops. But still, you you truly can't rely on, just like you can't rely on a doctor to make you better, like you still got to, you know, wake up and go to the gym. Even with this, even with, you know, the respected, you know, the boys in blue, this to me was like, you have to have your guard up. With everyone, I mean you truly you have to watch everyone you almost have to trust but verify I mean that's what all the special forces guys I have on here say they're like you trust with you trust but verify everyone every
0: day without a doubt it's
1: but yeah Mr. vecchione introduce yourself for the new listeners and then we'll
0: jump into the story okay for the new listeners my name is Michael vecchione and um I've been an attorney for I hate to say this well over forty years and I was a prosecutor for thirty of those years. The last um, about the last ten of them, I was chief of the rackets division in the Brooklyn DA's office, and before that, I was chief of trials, and before that, chief of the homicide bureau, where I did this case. I was the chief of the homicide bureau when this case came into uh, into our office, and uh, because it was a uh, it was a police officer who was um, who was thought to be the murderer, and I say thought because in the beginning of the investigation, it was unclear who the killer was, um, it came to me as opposed to one of the people who worked for me. The DA wanted, you know, my experience, and I was the chief, and I was responsible for cases like this. So I got it, and I was very happy to um, to have gotten it because um, it was a case that uh, the kind of, you know, it, it was really the the kind of case that occurred, except for the person who committed the crime, that occurred during the time of the '90s in Brooklyn, where uh, where the crime rate was out of control, and um, and and it was you know starting to get the early '90s, starting to get under control as Mayor Giuliani came in and, and established you know uh, law and order again in the city. But this was a this was kind of typical of the kind of cases where uh, that were happening back then. I mean, the murder rate in the city. During those years, the late '80s, early '90s, was pushing two thousand murders. So I mean, that even for a city of you know eight million people, that's a lot of dead people in one year. And it was, um, and in Brooklyn, we had our fair share. So, so that's who I am, and that's that's what I will tell you this this case. And I think it's um, that you're right, Tom. That this is kind of the this is the kind of case where um, perhaps if. Mr. Chan, who was one of the who was the deceased, or Larry Collins, who was one of the injured people in the case, had a weapon behind that counter as opposed to kind of nothing. That maybe there would have been, there may not have been a robbery at all. Because if I was, if I had a gun like that, I would make sure that the people in the neighborhood knew I had it, mm-hmm. so it would prevent people from coming in. So, um, so you're correct, but uh, but I also think there's one other lesson here. We'll get into it. Is is how how dogged the police department was once the hint came out that it might have been a cop. And I'm not talking about IAB because internal affairs was not involved in this investigation when I had it. It was a precinct detective who actually was the, was the force behind this investigation. He and his captain detective captain um, worked with me and, and it was them who really brought this, this bad cop to justice. So, so it says a lot for, for the boys in blue, you know, they get, they get shit upon all the time, but this is one where they, where justice in their minds needed to be served and they did it. So, so that's another, another thing we take away from this case.
1: It's a beautiful example of, uh, you know, it's like, you know, not, What is it? You know, one bad apple can ruin everything. And, you know, you often hear people and it is for all very distant future listeners. It is 2021 right now. It's, you know, the last year, two years we've seen the ACAB, all cops are bastards movement, which is to me just demonic communist scum. I always and always have when I see a cop, I always tell him, I'm like, hey, like the squeaky wheel gets the, you know, gets the attention. Don't listen to everyone that says every person screaming cops are bastards. There are 99 people who are thankful for them, and does that take bad away? Anymore. Does that take away from the bad cops that there are? No, not at all. Those bad cops are assholes. What a lot, but the point I'm getting at is what a lot of people say, and I hate it because it's easier said than done. But we'll play devil's advocate: is if there's only a few bad cops, then the good cops need to do their part to rat them out. Which I mean. Sounds you know, it's easy in argument it's easy as a thirty one year old sitting in a chair in an apartment to dictate what should and shouldn't be. But this is a case where that is literally what happened. So yes, because, it is. Yeah. And
0: and there is. And there's one other detective who was not in the initial investigation of, of the murder and robbery in that liquor store. It he was he made an arrest in a case in another precinct of the lookout in this robbery. For another, a completely unrelated case. And when that guy started to talk to him, trying to save his own ass by giving up the people who did the liquor store robbery, that by that point, it was almost a year old, that cop heard and realized that it was a fellow officer who was the shooter and who was the murderer. He didn't bury it. He didn't put it you know, in the drawer and leave it there and, and just leave it alone. He came to me. He came to the other. The detectives and said, listen, this is what I have. I want to work with you. And and he did. And he worked with us, you know, from that point on until we made the arrest. So um, so it, it, this is an example, a, a really very, very good example of how the 99% of the police officers operate and do their job and honor their, their badge and protect the citizens of this, you know, of the city um, across the country. So Um, but I guess we should start to talk about what the facts are so we can, so people know what we're talking about. So, um, so I'm, I'm here. You want to ask me questions or you want me to, um, ask me some questions and I'll get into, you know, some sort of a narrative at some point. All
1: right. Well, well, so for everyone listening, um, we'll just kind of get onto the, I guess, beginning stages of it is what happened was, is a police officer, uh, using his badge to, to get behind a counter at a, at a liquor store and i don't i'll i'm trying to figure out how to do this without just retelling the story what it starts as is so here's a question then how prevalent was this before that ever happened was this something that you saw uh in other cases Uh, you know we always hear about um for instance towards the end of the cold war uh robert hansen who is now serving life in prison at adx florence he was taking cash he was taking cash payments from the kgb to turn over fbi secrets uh um, who is it, Ames? I believe it was uh, Ames, the CIA guy, who turned yeah. over tons of undercover agents during the Cold War, again, for money. So we see this again and again, right? Or, you know, not to, you know, get too political, but Dick Cheney, as vice president, had left the position as CEO of Halliburton, which recorded record-breaking profits during the recon, reconstruction uh, projects during the Iraq War. So we we know this happens, where people... Most notably, you would say either the military-industrial complex or big pharma. We know this happens, the revolving door, legislators to the governing bodies, to the private corporations, and go in that kind of triangle of corruption and making money hand over fist. But it also happens on smaller (coughs) levels. And, you know, one way you could say is, you know, cops moonlighting. I remember when I was in a fraternity in Valdosta, Georgia— we'd have this ginormous party every spring called Purple Haze. And we'd build up this like fence around the uh, frat house. It was just these like 10, 12 foot tall wooden poles with what looked just like tarps. And it was just to block out Because what we were doing is everyone was just getting shit-faced. We were having a bunch of like the new freshman initiates get shit-faced. We're all 18, 19. And you don't need to be right on the main road of the college campus where anyone can see a bunch of underage kids getting shit-faced. So we have this wall. And then we'd maybe pay off an alumni cop, right? And he would do, he would, you know, he'd work the door. Security. Security, yeah. But he was also making sure that, you know, if another cop came by, hey, we're getting noise complaints in they see their guy. Yeah, you right. Exactly. Much lighter, much more, you know, victimless. What this is in between the two extremes, the victimless frat house security and the turning over CIA agents for, you know, who get executed so you can make a buck. Really, you know, really in the middle. Well, not even middle, probably more towards harmless, not harmless to the victims was what happened here. So the question I have for you is how often had this happened beforehand in your own experiences in New York or just, and I guess the history of American police, do we have this sort of gross abuse of the badge for cash?
0: Well, in my, uh, part of my career, I also did two years as the, um, Chief Prosecutor in the New York City Police Department, and and I prosecuted cops for um, for violations of the rules and procedures of the police department, and um, and and there I had my fair share of cases in that office of cops using the badge to uh, to enrich themselves or to to get ahead to do things uh, that they shouldn't be using the badge for, um, so. It, was it prevalent i wouldn't call it prevalent but i would call it i wouldn't say it was uncommon so it was kind of in between that but this situation part of it was very common and that is the fact that it, this cop was smart enough as a as an as a thief to realize that the way in to this liquor store was to use his shield to go to the to say he needed to use the bathroom now, cops today, cops from the time that they've been walking beats, would find a place, the friendly place on their beat, to use the bathroom. Um, and cops tell me all the time they know who to go to, who will let them in, and who will who will do this. So, so keep in mind also this guy, this cop, Robert Cabeza, lived around the corner from the liquor store, so he felt he felt emboldened. That he was, you know, he was able to. He was going to be able to get behind that plexiglass um, to uh, to do this robbery. Now, the part that is uncommon was using the shield to get to, to the, you to using it to do this kind of a crime. I mean, you might use it to get a few extra bucks from somebody. Maybe he went in there, but to use it and then ultimately take out your gun and shoot them. And shoot and kill the person who helped you out, that was that was very, very uncommon. So what what was what I believe happened is that the two accomplices with Cabeza um realized that they were all thieves. I mean, all three of them. And Cabeza, as it turns out, I now know because I cross examined them and did all the research into them, was, was really hard up for money. He was he was a loser. He is his apartment. Was, he was about to be kicked out of his apartment. He had his car was repossessed. He had defaulted on his auto insurance. He was a, he was a mess. And um, so he was a thief. Because he needed to be a thief in his mind in order to make money. He was a lazy motherfucker, very honestly, because and I'll tell you why. And I'm jumping ahead here, but I'll tell you when I cross cross-examined them, his excuse for having the jury believe that he would didn't need to do any robberies was that police get paid overtime, and there was a lot of overtime back then because there were the the force was not at its at its best in terms of numbers. Their crime was was rampant. So um, he said no I don't need to, to rob you I you know police get overtime well he didn't realize that he was dealing with somebody like me who would check every single thing that he was about to say and I anticipated that and I checked the the overtime records with the police department you know how much overtime he did Tom none none zero so so he was he was he was a bad guy a bad guy so his and he, and he enlisted these two other bad guys to hit this liquor store, which, as from reading, this, you know, they believed was a gambling spot. They believed that it was more than just selling, you know, wine and 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 liquor, and you know, in the in the hood, they believed that it was a place that took numbers that uh, bet, you know, took all kinds of bets. And 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 believe me, Tom, there were plenty of those around yes. as well.
1: Yeah, a lot of back rooms they, where there it, were mountains it, of
0: cash. Exactly, and they figured that's what it was. So Cabeza put together this little gang, um, a guy named Stover and a guy named Marshall, and um, and it was there. He, they cooked up this, this scheme. They were going to wait just before the store closed, and it closed on midnight most nights. This I think this was a Saturday, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was a Saturday. But um, they were they, they were going to go, he was going to walk in just before the store was closed to maximize, and you realize this, maximize the profit. If this was a gambling spot, they weren't taking any bets after the gate was pulled down. So all the bets would have been in at that point. All of the money would have been in at that point if it was, in fact, what they thought it was. So he, his scheme was, or his idea was to walk in there, show the shield, got to use the bathroom. And Mr. Chan, who was the owner of the place, who's a polite from what I understand from his family and his friends was a wonderful guy. He just, he said, sure, come on in. He opened up the the plexiglass door that was connected to two ends of the counter and, and Cabeza got behind it. What Chan didn't realize is that there was a guy right at the front door, this guy Stover, who was watching what was going on. And once he saw Cabeza get inside, Cabeza kept the door open and now Stover went in as well. So now we had two bad guys behind the plexiglass with Mr. Chan and Larry Collins, who was his helper in the store, completely um, completely trapped. There was no place for these guys to go. So what Cabeza does is he he demands the money. And Chan tells him, I, I took all of the store seats to the bank. All I have is is change from you know to be to use for tomorrow's. Liquor sales. Of course, Cabeza didn't believe that. He said, No, no, I want the money. I want the gambling money. Said, Chan said, I don't, there's no gambling here. And what happens is, um, Cabeza fires a shot from his revolver, from his pistol into the ceiling to scare him. Well, it worked because Chan and Collins dropped to the floor and, um, and they told him. Where they told Cabeza where the money was—that was in a store, and it was like fifteen hundred bucks in a register. Now, keep in mind, they needed all of that change because when people started to come in, there were no in that hood. There was no there were no credit cards used. It was all cash, and this guy was not going to take any credit cards. So he had fifteen hundred in cash to make uh, to make change, and he was pissed. Cabeza was pissed off. He was um he said. Himself and he said to and I found out later on he said to Stover, you know, can't believe this is a mess. We there should have been more money here. And um Stover says to him, "Let's get out of here because there's already a shot has gone off. And even though you know that is kind of an unusual thing in that neighborhood. It was a very bad neighborhood. Yeah. so you can't you can't count on the cops not coming. So instead of just leaving the store." Cabeza says to Stover, they got to go, meaning Collins and Chan. And he said, they got to go. They saw my face. And Cabeza shoots Mr. Chan, who's laying on the floor of the the, uh, liquor store now because he's frightened from that first shot, shoots him five times in the back. Five times, Tom. And Collins gets shot by Stover. Stover isn't as good a marksman and doesn't kill Collins, but does, in some respects, is even worse. He severs his spine with the shot that he kid, And now both of them are laying there, and they now leave the store. Marshall, this guy Marshall, who provided the guns, he also provided a walkie-talkies, which he was able to, which, which Cabeza was able to tune into the police so he could hear if the cops were were coming, they take off. They run into this big housing project across the street, into Marshall's apartment. Actually, Marshall's girlfriend's apartment, where they get rid of all of the guns, get rid of the walkie-talkies, give them to her. I think her name was McGee, Rosalind McGee. I think. And um, and that was it. They take off. They disperse. They leave. They s- separate. Question. So yeah, go ahead. So.
1: And you didn't you didn't include this in the story. And if you did, it went over my head. Was there was there any scenario in which they weren't going to kill these guys? Because if you're going in using the badge, I mean, you've crossed the Rubicon. You've now they'd see your face. You're using a badge. There's no way they haven't seen your face. Was there? Is this just me giving the bad guys too much benefit of the doubt? Was there a scenario in which it is a gambling front? They get all this money. And then it's, hey, you know, you don't go to jail for running this ring. You don't mention my name. You know, maybe you pay for my protection. It turns into something like that. Or was this from the get go? Did he know that they were going to kill them both?
0: I don't think so. I think what happened is what you just said. Okay. if this had been a gambling spot and they stole all the receipts, there's no way Then they Marshall. Yeah over and Cabeza would have been very happy to leave without worrying about it because Chan, Mr. Chan was not going to the cops to say, oh, by the way, my big, my illegal gambling spot was just taken down by, by three guys. But when it didn't happen that way and, um, and Cabeza realized that, that this was, he was going to get reported to the police. And keep in mind, don't forget this. He lived around the corner from the, from, the, um, from the, the the liquor store. In fact, later that evening, when the cops are all there and the detectives are there and everything, Cabeza comes by with his dog. He's walking his dog and starts to talk to one of the detectives who he knows on the scene. Hey, what's going on? What happened here? That kind of thing. So Cabeza was not going to take a chance that Chan or Collins, who lived also not far away, were, were going to, uh, he wouldn't be identified. First of all, if they tell the police that the guy who came in was a cop and had a police shield and got behind this, got behind the, the uh, you know, the plexiglass, well, now the police will just simply take them into the, you know, take them into their, uh, into, into headquarters or wherever and have them go through photographs. Yeah. That's, and, and he would have been picked out because he just would have been picked out. Mr. Chan was a smart guy. But the other thing about Chan, and I found this out, as I was preparing the case, is this is a hardworking? I mean, this is really kind of like the real immigrant story, success story in America. The guy had come to America about six, twenty sixteen or twenty years before, and worked. Or do you think an Asian guy would work at that point? Either in a sweatshop making making clothes and in, in, you know the low, on the lower east side, or in a restaurant. And he worked in restaurants for for I think. 12 years, 13 years until he got enough money to open up his own store and he opened up this liquor store which was very successful in that neighborhood um, So it was a you know it was a, it was a real a real tragedy and and to compound it, the um, the police had nobody uh, to you know there were at that point no witnesses I mean nobody we're talking about a cold February night, it's dark as obviously hell in, in the area there. And it's not, it's not the kind of place that if there were people out, that these were going to be the kind of people who would say, oh, excuse me, officer, I have to do my civic duty and tell you who I saw. It's not like that. It was- Mr. Collins, Collins also couldn't speak. The severing of oh. his spinal cord, he was not able to speak. He was in the hospital, in rehab, and in, in the hospital and in rehab for um, for over a year before he is he gets the ability to speak again. And when the police learn of this, the detectives learn of this, they go to interview him, and that's for the first time a year or more later. Do they find out? that there may very well be a cop who is the killer here because Collins tells them about the shield and how they got behind behind the counter. The other thing that happens is that these guys are so sloppy and they would have gotten caught even if Collins hadn't in my opinion hadn't told them that is that they were using automatics. There were shells all over the place. They recovered even a 45 bullet, you know, around in the ceiling. Which is probably the one that he shot. So it was just going to be a matter of time because Cabeza was a, was not a genius. He probably used a gun that was registered to him, and it, it would have gotten. Yeah, it would have gotten back to him. I'm so just,
1: yeah, I'm listening to everything you're saying, I'm like, shells are there. Like, I mean, i okay, I'm never going to do this, but if I am going to be a demon and and do this, you're going to make you're going to do a final one, and you're going to put one in the head of each. You're going to make sure there's no because if you've already crossed the Rubicon. Hey, we have now pulled the shield. I'm now arresting. Now you have to kill them. If you're already shot them. I mean, you're going to make sure. Why would you not and maybe I'm maybe I'm the devil. Why would you not put one in their head, each of them? Because you have to close it off. And second of all, I mean, maybe I'm just – maybe I've been spoiled by hanging out with the Delta Force guys. But you pick up the shells. What are you doing? Zero yeah, footprints. Cool. Plausible deniability. But maybe oh. that's the reason why he robbed a liquor store and the other guys are Delta Force is
0: – You know, Cabeza, Cabeza may have been a cop, but he was not a genius and he was not a not detective material. Mm-hmm. And as we get in later into the story, I'll tell you – well, you, you know because you read it, but I'll tell your – Audience, what happens later, and it proves it's the absolute proof that we're not dealing with a rocket scientist here in terms of of this.
1: No, n- another another side comment. I was just thinking of another episode we did where the guy faked you know faked being his mom, huh. and, yeah. he, and the depths and the extent he went to, and I think we were both joking, like, man, like you just go go be CIA, like you get paid to do this, like, but. You know, when you come up with these questions, you know, Delta Force picks up the shells. It's like, well, the reason why this guy is not CIA, the reason why this guy doesn't do what surprise the Delta Force guys do is because there's a ceiling to the I mean, a lot of these guys are evil. But there's also stupid criminals like you're like you're you're stupid if you think you're going to get. And I understand there's desperation. Some guys don't care if they know they're not going to get away with it. But there is a level
0: of just of stupidity. Truly Absolutely, yeah. we always used to say, "Thank God these guys are are, yeah. are stupid," because you know there are very few uh, Lex Luthers out there, you know, that uh, who um, who can get away with stuff. Look, even Madoff got caught, right? Madoff was doing this for for years and years and years before he made he started making mistakes, and you know, this guy Cabeza and these other two were by far. Um, I mean, were were not as I said before, not geniuses, they, 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 you know, they were not uh, Mensa members, believe me. So, so they, you know, and the other thing is they, they involved before the shooting, they involved Stover's girlfriend who um, was present when the guns were all handed out by, uh, by Marshall. Marshall was the armorer that was done at Stover's apartment and his girlfriend was there. They gave the guns when they went after the shooting, the guns and the, and the, the walkie talkies and stuff, they gave to Rosalind McGee, who was Marshall's girlfriend. So they weren't even smart enough to keep this a tight knit group. They let they <laughs> two two young women were involved in this whole thing and. and you know, things happen. Believe me, they happen with relationships, as you know. They, you can't guarantee that these people weren't going to testify. So, I, I believe I believe that I've had McGee, Rosalyn McGee testify at the trial, but I don't remember that part. But um, so that's what we're talking about. But keep in mind how frustrating it was for for the detectives who were involved in this to not get anybody, not get anything, not the not the hint of of evidence until. A year later, when stole when Collins comes around and tells him about the cop, and now, there's, that's when the precinct detective, his name is Greg Saunders, reaches out to me and says, "Now I'm in charge of the homicide bureau." At that time, I was the chief, and he calls me, and I didn't know Greg, but he called me and said, "Can I come down and talk to you?" And I said, "Of course." You know, and came down. And he told me what he had, and he said, um, "I said, listen, I'm going to work with you. Just, just it'll be, it'll be us and." You know who you have? You have anybody working with you? And he said, "Yeah, the captain, either sergeant or the captain—I forgot what it was—who were who were um, involved in the investigation." So things started at that point to start falling into place. Collins tells them they believe it's a cop. Then what happens is two arrests are made by the uniform cops of two junkies—separate arrests. <clears throat> And it turns out, as normally happens, and this has happened to me more than one time, the guy gets arrested. He's probably, I don't remember if he had warrants. One guy did have warrants, and the other guy may have been just, um, may have gotten arrested, just didn't want to go back back into jail. They both said to the arresting officers, completely separate now, I was out. I can tell you who, who was responsible for the Eden Liquors robbery. And one guy um, says, yeah, I, I, I can tell you. And he tells him. He tells him, and he, he said, I know them. One guy named Cabeza, one guy named Stover, and one guy named Marshall. I know. I saw them. I saw them hanging around. I was out. Now, remember, I told you that it was a cold midnight on a cold February night. Only the worst kind of guys are going to be out on the street, junkies, the people who were drinking or whatever. So That was one, you say, okay, you got this one guy, but you know, who knows what his background is like. But then a second guy comes forward, separate. They were not together. They were not friends. The second guy says, I saw them go in. I saw them come out. I heard the shot. I know it's Cabeza. And they all, of course they identify him as a cop. They knew he was a cop. The Cabeza, Marshall and Stover. So now we have two separate witnesses who tell the exact same story well, with little differences here or there and it jives with what Collins is now saying. Collins was unable to to make any identifications as you could well imagine. I mean I'm sure that his you know his his injury and and his his, his year of torture after that would probably preyed on his head, but he was unable to make an identification. but um, the other guys, So anyway, I'm sorry. I'm jumping in. No,
1: no, keep going.
0: um, So now we we have two guys, street guys, who say these are the people. A third thing happens now. Marshall gets arrested in a neighboring precinct by another detective for I think a robbery he had done or some crime he had done like six months before this one. Marshall was a two or three-time loser. He did not want to go back to jail. So guess what he does? He says, I can give you the, the uh, Eden liquor, the people who did the Eden liquor, but I want a deal. So we listened to him and um, we offer him a deal. He tells us, it was me. I provided the guns. I was the lookout. It was Arnold Stover who went in and it was this cop named Cabeza who, um, who was the shooter. Said this was great. Now we've got one of the bad guys, two of these witnesses, and we got Collins. This is this is terrific. Marshall, however, turns out to be what I figured he was going to be—a total scumbag. He doesn't like the deal, so he says it he is another genius. He's already confessed, confessed to a detective, confessed on the record, and he now says, "You know what? Yeah. I don't want." You what I told you is not true, that kind of stuff, <laughs> which, which is totally, totally. I mean, just um, this gives you another idea as to how. Not, yeah,
1: not rocket scientists. Yeah.
0: Didn't make a difference. We went ahead and they made the arrest. Now, this is a key point. When the arrest is made of, um, of uh, Cabeza, I think we arrested them separately. They were all arrested around the same time, but separately. And they made the arrest of Cabeza. I get called to come down and do what what we called a ride. ADAs were on call 24 hours a day 365 a, a year.
1: ADA to
0: to respond to police precincts in Brooklyn to take recorded confessions or statements from either witnesses or defendants. What, so that way what's if a- there con- what's an ADA? Assistant District Attorney. Okay, sorry. That's what I was. Everybody, There's one district attorney. Everybody else in the office who is a lawyer is called an assistant district attorney. Okay. So there's a, an assistant district attorney on call every day of the year, 24 hours a day. And what the job is, is to respond to precincts when cops make arrests, to record statements made by the bad guys or by witnesses. Now you have a, a, a concrete record of what they say. And believe me, they were, those are valuable, valuable pieces of, of evidence. And then as far as the bad guys are concerned, we would videotape the confession and then play it later on at trial for a jury. It's, it's, a, it's golden to a prosecutor. So they call me. I go down to interview uh, Cabeza, give him his rights, his Miranda rights. And he tells me he wants a lawyer, doesn't want to talk to me. So I pack up my stuff and I leave. But I'm able to convict. I'm able to um, to indict him based upon the two witnesses, based upon Collins and um, and based upon the confessions that Marshall gave. And um, and yeah, Marshall's confession and the two guys. We get an indictment, right? We get, but because Marshall's statement, confession, I should say, implicates Cabeza, When the case goes to trial the judge says we can't try them with one jury because it would be prejudicial for Marshall's statement and confession naming Cabeza to be heard by the jury. And the reason for that is Cabeza has the right under the law to confront his accuser. Marshall, as a defendant, doesn't have to take the stand. So Cabeza can't confront them because he doesn't have the ability to confront them. So what has to happen is Two separate juries. They Both of them were in the same courtroom. They heard all of the evidence, except when I put in Marshall's confession, one jury had to leave, and only Marshall's jury heard the uh, the evidence as to um, as to Marshall's confession, okay? okay? So again, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Now, before we started the trial, <laughs> I had gotten a case, I got the indictment. I need to go to the scene. I, you know, if a prosecutor doesn't go to the scene of the crime to see what the lay of the land is, that's a bad prosecutor. Because if you don't know where all the lights are, what the what the scene looks like, you know, you could be taken taken advantage of by a good defense attorney. So I get the two detectives who work with me, and I get two my my investigators from the DA's office, and we go to Eden Liquors. It's about a year, about a year, a little bit more than a year after the, the shooting killing maybe closer to a year and a half and um i walk into the liquor store and it's exactly the way it was then plexiglass all the way around and there were two young asians behind the counter a male and a female it turns out that they're mr chan's daughter and son so i walk in and they look at me and say they came away can i help you and I show my D.A. shield, which is identical to a detective, New York City police detective shield. And the other guys now had their shields out. I, Tommy, you should have seen your faces. Brilliant. You know, they almost, I thought they were going to collapse in the store. Or, they sh- were, or shoot you. Yeah, they were. Well, we were on the other side of the plexiglass. I think the plexiglass was pretty good. But, but we... I, I saw what their reaction was, and I quickly said, and the detectives did too, they said, Mike, come on, come out. Let's go. Come outside for a minute. So we went outside, and Detective Saunders, who was working the case um, from day one, said, I'll go in. Let me just, quote, unquote, introduce you. Because first this is the first time I had ever seen them, seen them. The first time I'd ever been to the store. So he does. He smooths things over. And they let us in and they let us, you know, go behind the counter. Now, of course, I realized later on, holy shit, yeah. their father was killed because somebody came in with a shield and wanted to get behind the counter. So, of course, they acted, they acted properly as far as I'm concerned. They didn't, weren't going to trust anyone.
1: Yeah.
0: So um, before you said trust and verify, well, they they didn't trust until they were, well, until it was verified. So, um, yeah. Anyway, that is what that was a, a really an eye-opening thing. That you know, you learn every day. I had been trying cases by that point, Tom, for probably twenty-five, maybe thirty years, and and I had done a lot of things in my career. And um, but that was an eye-opener. That had never happened to me before. And I thought about it later on. and I said, you know, that was really a rookie mistake. Yeah, I should have. I should have listened. Or thought about that before I did it. Anyway it turns out that i got i developed a terrific relationship with the chan family mrs her his wife is to this daughter and son whose name escapes me for the moment um and from that point on i kept in touch with them they kept in touch with me they were um they were there for some of the trial they the, the trial was a very difficult thing for them to be listening to because obviously because of their their father's death so um, So the case proceeds along, and hit, now we're getting to another twisted turn of events here. We're about, I'd say, about two to three weeks away from starting the trial, and I'm at my desk, and I get a call from the detective, who's the security guy, who's sitting on the front desk at the DA's office, and he says, "Mike, I got a guy here who wants to talk to you." I said, "What?" And I asked, "What's his name?" He tells me um, it was. Um, Oh, what the hell is his name? Um, Give me one second. Let me just take a look at this. I I can't remember the guy's name. I don't know why. Uh, It was um, Cicero Murphy. That was his name. So he tells me, Cicero Murphy. I said, listen, I don't know the guy. I said, ask him what he's here for. So the detective calls me back and says um, he says he's got information about Marshall and the Cabeza case. Now, I'm in the midst of preparing it. I'm ready to go to trial. I said, OK, send them back. Comes to my office and he tells me this story about how he just got out of jail and um, he was in jail with Jeffrey Marshall. Jim Marshall was in awaiting trial on this case. Murphy was in on another case some some separate case. And Marshall realized or learns that Murphy is kind of a jailhouse lawyer. And what that I mean by that is there are guys who in jail either have had a little bit of a background with uh, maybe they were paralegal, worked for a law office, stuff like that before they got arrested. And Murphy was one of those guys. He had done some paralegal work and, um, and he did stuff and did motions and things like that for the guys in jail who didn't want to involve their lawyers or couldn't afford to involve their lawyers. So Marshall, Marshall figured, this guy is my man, because he had something in mind. So one day he gets, oh, he also knew that, that, um, that Murphy was getting out soon. He was getting out within, within a couple of weeks. So he comes to him and he says, listen, I want you to do me a favor and, um, and I think he told him he was going to pay him. And I don't remember what the payment was. And he was going to get him a job. That was the other thing. He said, listen, here's what I want you to do. My alibi, I have an alibi for my trial. And he called it himself. He said, I have a bullshit alibi that I'm going to put before the jury. And it's my father. My father is going to testify that at the day on the day and at the time of the murder, I was with him. And he says to Murphy, he said it was it's not true, It's total bullshit. but I need I need you to prepare my father, who's going to be a witness. You've got to prepare him for cross-examination. You've got to make sure that he stands up and uh, and, and this alibi is believed by the jury. So Marshall uh, uh, Murphy gets out of jail. He is told by Marshall to go to Marshall's lawyer's office, where he is going to have get a job as he's going to give him a job as a paralegal, and that's Murphy's likes likes that. He says, you know, I'm I'm out of jail now. I need money, so he goes to work at this lawyer's office, right, as a paralegal. But and what's his main job? Main job is to prepare Marshall's father to lie on the witness stand. In this alibi, and to prepare him well, to prepare him for cross and do this other stuff, right? So um, <laughs> he um, he he does it. He does. He prepares the prepares the whole thing, and um, and the lawyer for Marshall knows it. Marshall, he knows that this. And, which is totally unethical. Yeah. It's not supposed to put a guy on the stand. He knows his line, but he, he didn't care. He was, he made like one of these things, you know, see no evil, see, no you no know evil. evil. See, yeah. So, um, I said to Murphy, I said, well, what do you want? He said, um, well, I want you to, I need help with this case that I just got out on bail on, you know, I didn't do it. And I said, uh, he said, you know, if you could look at it, maybe you can, you can, I can work out a deal. I said, listen, I don't know you. I don't know if you're telling me the truth. I don't even know if Marshall's father is going to take the stand. We haven't even started trial yet. So I'll let you know. And I gave him no answer about, so trial starts about three weeks later. um, And by the way, the reason that he came in to now blow up this whole alibi is he had had a little bit of a falling out with, uh, with Marshall, and, uh, and and we'll get to that in a little bit. Several falling, off, several things happened that that this guy Murphy was was left holding the bag on. So um, so the trial proceeds, and um, and we get to the point, and it goes well. I mean, Tom, it was it was terrific. So it, the last piece for the prosecution was putting on uh, Marshall's putting on the detective who took Marshall's confession, and I do that. So the prosecution rests, and the judge. It's now let's say it's about um, eleven a.m. on a Friday. The defense. The judge says to the defense, "Do you have, do you have a case?" Marshall's attorney says, "Yes, we have an alibi witness." So I um, he had given me what they call alibi notice in the event they were going to use it, which is which is required in New York State to give the prosecutor a chance to. Um, to look into the alibi. Well, I had already had that chance because of that meeting that Murphy gave me. Right? I said, okay. So now I needed to find Murphy. Keep in mind, it's now around eleven thirty noon, and the judge wants to end the case that day. He wasn't giving me two days to find Murphy. So I send my DIs. I tell them, find out, find Murphy for me. My DIs are detective investigators who work with prosecutors. Right. <laughs> They come back to me. Now it's lunchtime. They say to me, no problem. I said, what do you mean? He said he's over in criminal court. He's been arrested again and just happened to be on the docket in the misdemeanor court, um, which is about a block and a half away from where from where um, I was, that courthouse. And I say misdemeanor court only only because most every misdemeanor is tried there, but also when people are arrested for felonies, their arraignment, initial arraignment, where they're apprised of the charges, happens in that courthouse. So his case is on the docket over there. I said, go over and get him. Bring him, back to, bring him back to this courthouse, and let's sit down with him. About half an hour later, I'm in the courthouse where I'm trying the case in the conference room. And detect my, my investigators bring in Cicero Murphy. He remembers me. I remember him. How are you? I said uh, to him, are you prepared to testify to what you told me about in my office a couple of weeks ago? He goes, yes. I said, and what are you looking for? Tell me again what you're looking for. He says, Mr. Vecchione, I'm not looking for anything. He, I said, nothing? He says, I'm not looking for anything. He says, you know why? I was in that other courthouse. He said, Marshall calls me from jail and asks me to go pick up a car that he wants me to bring to somebody else. And I agreed to do it for him. The car gets stopped. He gets stopped. And the cops are looking down onto the floor of the car. There's a gun (laughs) on the floor of the back seat. Marshall set this fucking guy up. And, And Murphy gets arrested and charged with possession of a weapon. He says to the cops, this is not even my car. This belongs to this guy, Jeffrey Marshall. That's his gun. I didn't even know it was here. So what did the cops do? They go to Rikers Island. They interview Marshall. Marshall says, I don't know anything about that gun. I never had it. I don't even <laughs> him, Murphy. I don't know this guy, he's full of shit. So Murphy is burning now. He wants to get on the stand and, uh, and testify, right? So I'm ready to go. The lunch break is over. I say that we go in. The judge says to me, are you ready, you know, with your, um, with your rebuttal? After the father testified, I said, yes, I am. Father testifies, right? Gives that alibi. <laughs> I cross-examine him. He's, you know, he's, he was all right. He, had, he was very well-schooled. I say to the judge, I now have a, a rebuttal witness. The lawyers, I'll never forget this time. The two lawyers are at the judge's bench with me, and I and the judge ca- calls us up there, and he says, "Who's your alibi witness? Who's your rebuttal witness?" And I say, um, "Judge, you'll see. It's um, it's it's one of Marshall's friends." So the lawyer, Marshall's lawyer, looks at me and says, "What are you talking about?" I said to him, "Oh, you'll know who he is. You'll see." The detectives bring him in through the back door. And the lawyer looks at me and says, that fucking guy, that's your witness? I said, yep, that's my witness. You're paralegal. You hired that guy. I'm at the bench now. The jury's not be, not able to listen to this. So he he almost, oh, my God, I thought he was going to drop dead in the courtroom at that point. Jesus. Murphy testifies and testifies fabulously, testifies to the whole thing. Anyway, we and the case it was it was terrific i mean it was he was a great witness i'm sorry i interrupted you were you going to ask a question
1: no i was going to say this sound this sounds like this sounds like your crowning trial of all the ones we've talked about i mean this really sounds like the one where you're going full full oh, four yeah. star it general was, strategist
0: yeah it was great it was <laughs> it was terrific it really was so i sum up everybody sums up the jury Um, The marshal, the the Cabeza jury, the cop jury comes back in about a day and maybe a day and a half of deliberations, guilty on all counts. Murder, now he's facing 25 to life. The marshal jury comes back, I think a little bit later that evening, and the marshal jury finds them guilty only of the robberies. because, And I talked to the jurors afterwards, and they said, You know, he was the guy, he was outside and he, we didn't feel that it was right for him to be held. He didn't know they were going to shoot. He did. He, I said, what about him giving them the guns? He said, well, he didn't know they were going to use them. So anyway, it was okay. Because Marshall was a, was a two or three time loser at that point. He was going to get banged. And he did. He did. He ultimately got 15 years for that robbery. Cabeza gets, um, gets 20, Five to life. But I gotta I gotta tell you what Cabeza was like on the witness stand because Cabeza testified in his trial. He testified on his own behalf, and this was a huge mistake on the part of the defense attorney. Because and I'm sure this is what happened. I'm sure the defense attorney told him, You don't want to testify. You're gonna get cross-examined. And you know, you're not he was an arrogant. A really arrogant guy who thought that his, you know, ever heard the expression, a guy thinks that his shit doesn't stink yeah. or that he shits ice cream, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Well, that was Cabeza. He gets on the stand, he tells this fairy tale about what a great guy he is and about him doing this, you know, him doing overtime and that he doesn't need this money and that you know he would never rob a store in his own neighborhood and he tells the story about how he was walking his dog and he saw this detective and they were investigating why would i do something so stupid and then go back to the scene etc that kind of thing well i finally get him on the cross examination and i and and this was really the key his arrogance number 1 came out because he thought that he was smarter than me so he figured he was going to take apart this you know peon of a prosecutor because you know he was Robert Cabeza and he knew he knew how to handle himself well I started to get into I started to get into his money situation which is which was the you know the Achilles heel for him and he told me that no you know I don't uh, I don't have any money problems and then I started to tick off did you lose your car yes Why? Because he didn't make his payments. Why? Because he couldn't make his payments. Did he default on his automobile insurance? Yes. Why? Because he didn't have the money and he couldn't pay the insurance. Did he, was his landlord? He had moved, by the way. He was no longer living in that neighborhood at the time of the trial. He was living in Queens in a home. Did, um, and his landlord in both places, Wanted to kick him out, and I and I brought this all out. I said to him, "So um, you pay your rent on time?" Well, yeah, you know I do my best. I can do it." I said, "Well, how come your landlord, your landlord wants to kick you out? Right? In fact, he's evicting you." "Well, yeah, you know we don't get along." And I said, "What about your new landlord? Same thing." He was so I now started to build up this mm-hmm. this idea that the motives for this what well, the motive for this was that this guy. You know, unlike what he portrayed himself to be, he was really on the balls of his ass in terms of money. He had talked about how he had gotten this other car and he's got this great car now. And and um, and I I didn't know something at that point and found out later on. And I figured and, and what I found out gave me the answer as to in my mind, how could this guy now afford this other car that he was talking about? Well, that brings me to kind of the, the end of the of the story in terms of how this turns out. So the jury didn't buy it. I mean, to have a police officer on the stand uh on trial for murder, I mean that's it's- a cop who's working. This is not a retired cop. This is a guy who every day put on that uniform and went out onto the street and patrolled the city. He was a he was a murderer. He was just a, you know, an out and out murderer. Um, and you know, of course, the other thing was that the defense attorney tried to downplay what the two drug guys on the street—and I, I say junkies—but I don't know if they were they were junkies. I, I don't remember. Oh, but there's and there's one other thing I forgot. The other part of my defense was um, Arnold Stover, the guy who was inside and shot Mr. Dan, uh, shot Mr. Collins. He agreed to come in and testify uh, against Cabeza and Marshall. So I had him. Now you might say to yourself, or maybe your listeners, and you say, well, why would he come in? Why, what was going on with him? Well, I got word from the detectives that Stover wanted to come in to talk to me in my office. I said, okay, bring him in. They bring him in in a wheelchair. I find out, that after he killed, after he shot Collins and Cabeza killed Mr. Chant, he Arnold Stover, about maybe five or six months later, attempted and did rob a bank, but the security guard in the bank got the drop on him, and as he was leaving, he shot him, hit him in the back, and um, and did the same thing to him as what he did to Collins in terms of his so. Stover now was going to spend the rest of his life probably in jail in a wheelchair. So he needed a break. He wanted a break. He wanted to see if he could get a break. So he wound up testifying for me. God, One other thing.
1: Karma's a bitch.
0: He had a, he had a brother who had just gotten out of jail. And his brother on his own comes in to talk to me. His brother's name was um, John and John, I said to, uh, to, to him, what What are you doing here? He said, "Well, I know what happened at that liquor store." And I said, "How do you know that?" He said, "Well, Marshall told me to hold story. Marshall was a big was a it was a big mouth, and he wanted to brag about what kind of a gangster he was. And he testified. He, he told this guy Stover, "You know, I did this robbery with your brother and this guy, um, uh, this guy Marshall, and a cop named Cabeza, You know that kind of stuff. So I said, "Okay, what 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 else?" He said. I said, but why are you here? What's your motivation? What do you want? He said, well, I I would like some help with a new case that I have. Of course, all of these guys were, you know, career criminals. Mm -hmm. He said, but more importantly, what I want is I want to make sure that the jury knows that my brother is not the only one who was involved in this. Because I got word back on the street that Marshall was blaming, that Marshall and Cabeza were going to blame the whole thing on my brother. And I know that that's not true because the marshal told me the story. So I had Arnold Stover. I had John Stover now, too. So that was the array of evidence I had. I had the two witnesses on the street who the defense attorney tried to say were just two junkies. Who would be out on the street at at midnight on a cold February night? In my summation, you know what I said to the jury? That's what the defense wants you to, to discount. I said, who would be out on the street at that time? Guys like them, not some priest, not a guy like not you people, those kind of guys. That's why you have to believe them. And, of course, he took down Arnold Stover. He said, because, you know, he's a thief. I said, yeah, but look whose friend he was before he came into the DA's office. It was Cabeza. And John Stover, same thing. So it went well. Um, and he tried to, and then of course, Marshall did his deal with his father. I felt sorry, by the way, for his father. His father was a nice guy. His father was a working man, but he was looking to help his son, you know, like anybody would do. I mean, he perjured himself on a witness stand. That was it. We, I, the DA afterwards decided not to do anything because we had already gotten a conviction. We, you know, we, you know, we, we didn't really want to go after this old guy and it was his son. So after about a day and a half, I told you. They convict Cabeza and they convict Marshall about a half a day after that, right? So it's terrific. Everything is great. Um, Cicero Murphy gets um I don't even do anything for Cicero Murphy. He goes off and he gets he gets convicted on that um on the gun tr- on the gun charge. You know, he you know, I, I didn't do anything for him. He never asked me to do anything, so I never did. I never did anything for him. On even the older case. So because that's how much he, he he hated Marshall. He hated Marshall because, and you can imagine, he Marshall put him back Set in him jail. Up.
1: Yeah.
0: So Marshall gets fifteen years, Cabeza gets twenty-five to life, plus for the shooting of Collins, he gets time for that on top of the twenty-five to life. And he goes off to jail. Now, now, what about
1: towards the end? Wasn't there like a follow-up? Didn't they start going to a lot of diners?
0: No, no. Here's what—that's here, what I'm getting. To. Okay, sorry. Yeah. So I am now literally the day after the uh, the sentencing. I'm in my at my desk and I'm cleaning up, uh, clearing cleaning up my desk, packing away the file, putting it in boxes to present to our file room, and I get a call from Greg Saunders. Um, I'm sorry, not after the sentencing, after the conviction. And uh, Greg Saunders, the detective, calls me and says, hey, Mike, I got to tell you something. I just got a a call from a detective in Manhattan. I said, what's up with that? He said, well, ever since the conviction, because what happened is a cop getting convicted, a cop who's working getting convicted of murder is big news. And it was all over the papers, all over the TV, and the, the, the picture that they used of Cabeza was pictures that the, the press took when they, after they arrested him and they walked him out of the precinct into the car to take him down to court. They call it a perp walk mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. So the perp walk pictures, which, you know, Cabeza came out and he was smiling and he got this, you know, not, he didn't have anything over his head. He just he walked out. He said those pictures were in the paper. When the cop got convicted, and this detective is getting calls from many, many people, And I said, well, "For what?" Well, it turns out about six months after the after he shot and killed Mister Chan, he went to a restaurant in on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, a really nice restaurant called um, One Fish, Two Fish, a fish, uh, a seafood place, very popular, very crowded all the time. And he held up the place. He and, and I forgot who, if he had uh, accomplices, but I don't remember. But And what he did was he went from table to table with a gun and held up all of the patrons in the restaurant. Dude, th- there were about 12 or 15 tables that he held up. Took their watches, took their money, took whatever, took their wallets, took whatever, took their phones, took everything. It was like a Wild West and, train robber. So what happens is all of these people are watching TV, This they didn't know he was a cop, obviously, when he was yeah. holding them up. And the other thing is he didn't even wear any face covering Jesus. at this restaurant. He didn't wear it. Now, I could understand, as we talked about before, the liquor store, which he thought was a, a gambling spot. He figured the guy's never going to give me up because he'd be giving himself up. But this is a legitimate big Manhattan restaurant on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, a good neighborhood, too, a very good neighborhood. He figured everybody in there has got to have money, and they did. He holds them up. I think it was 12. I think he did 12 separate robberies in that restaurant of people sitting, eating their dinner. No face covering. So all these people. Now, uh, calling in the detective, and they say that cop who got arrested and convicted yesterday, he held us up at the rest because the case was an open case at that point. So, knowing Cabeza, or uh, I'm sorry, knowing the Cabeza that I know, he gets arrested and charged with 12 separate robberies in the first degree in Manhattan. And in, now he's doing, time. he's doing life already. You would think that it's a no-brainer. He takes a plea, tries to convince the prosecutor to give him concurrent sentences, not you know, not something that's on the end of the life sentence, which I know sounds stupid, but there's a he could get out earlier, even if he doesn't do life. He doesn't do that. He goes to trial. He's such an arrogant guy that he believes that he's gonna beat this. Tom, there are 12 separate, maybe even their spouses, yeah. witnesses, who sat on the witness stand and said, that's the guy who robbed me. That's the, that's the, the guy who, who, who robbed us at gunpoint. Yeah. you believe this? The judge in the case, now at his sentence, he gets convicted of all of these robbers. The judge in the case sentences him to 12 and a half to 25 years for each of the robberies and adds it to his sentence in Brooklyn. So he now has over 100 years at the bottom and life at the top of his, all because he was an arrogant son of a bitch. I mean, this was a guy, Tom, when I can't tell you, when he was on a witness stand with me, he was preening. He thought that he was, he was a good looking guy. He could get all... Over on a jury, you know, he they're gonna believe me. I'm a police officer, I'm a good looking guy, I you know, I have a job. That's the kind of guy he was. And um it and it turns out afterwards we found out later on that before he did the Eden Liquor case, he had done uh he had committed a crime as well, another robbery. So so this is this was a very, very bad guy. And um, and it was the work of these three. Detectives. Greg Saunders, his his captain or, or sergeant, and another detective, Derek Parker, who is the guy that got the confession from, from Marshall, who came to me and we put this whole thing together and convicted one of their own. I mean, this is these and this is not internal affairs. I want to make sure that your listeners and your, your viewers know this. These are precinct detectives who were not charged in terms of you know of their their duty, not charged with, with investigating other cops. Internal affairs guys are charged. That's what their their mission yeah. is, to root out corrupt cops or bad cops. These guys recognize that this is one of their own who make who's making them look bad. And he kills this this poor guy, Mr. Chan, who was doing nothing except working in a in a business that he had put together after twelve or fifteen years of hard work. He gathered the money together and and opened up this, this liquor store. So I I have to tell you, you know, when you say that this was one of your, one of the cases that, you know, you prepared and did what you just, how you described my, my other cases, I have to say this was one of the most satisfying cases that I have ever involved in the investigation and and ever, you know, tried. It was, um, it was satisfying because, um, and then of course I, I, I got the chance to, you know, let the Chan family. I don't, I don't think they were in the courtroom because the verdict came in at night, came in at about um, eight or nine o'clock. Oh, and by the way, there's another part of the satisfaction. So the jury's out an entire day, right? And now I had a strong case. You have to admit, no matter. Against Cabeza. You know, Marshall, he had that bullshit alibi and, you know, but but (coughs) I had a really strong case against Cabeza. So the jury goes out early in the morning. We tried, they tried to, the judge probably charged them about, these probably went out around 11 o'clock all day into the night. And then at that point in Brooklyn, jurors were sequestered. They didn't go home. They were held in a hotel so all and the judges kept them late to try to get a verdict soon. So they they were all um, by the time they went out, it was like nine o'clock, maybe 10 o'clock. They had been working all day long. The defense attorney now started to feel really good. He was he was a, another one of these guys who, uh, you know, was a, to me a very arrogant guy. Never just not a not a decent guy. And um, the next day, now we're coming, deliberations are going on all day, all day from like 10 o'clock in the morning. The court day was over, no verdict, right? Um, about 8 o'clock at night, we get a call. I get a call. I had a guy working with me also, another attorney, that the verdict, you know, jury's in. You go to the courtroom the defense attorney for cabeza was so con- confident and convinced that he had gotten an acquittal that he had his wife with him in the courtroom he brought some family members or friends he sat they sat in the first row of the courtroom while he went into the into the well of the court all waiting it was his moment of triumph that's why he had all those people there when they said guilty tom his face you could have, I mean, he, his jaw hit the ground. It was unbelievable. He, he can, I said to him later on, his name was Stu, I said, did you actually believe that you were going to get an acquittal here? He goes, yeah, yeah you know, I, it was a great, the guy did well on the stand. I said, uh, so he did horribly on the stand. What are you crazy? You think that these jurors liked him? He was awful. But he had brought, I'll never forget that. He brought his wife into the courtroom so he could preen and he could, you know, and, and, and have her be proud of him getting this, this cop off, you know, he had his, one of his biggest clients was the police union. That's why he, he had, uh, he had the case. He represented the police union when cops who were union members got into trouble. So um, the it was, um, that was, that was really another part of the satisfaction that I got out of this because he was, um, he was arrogant, the defense attorney, arrogant. And, you know, and his ways and his manner were like that in the, um, you know, during the course of the trial, but Cabeza, nothing, no guy that I have ever been around deserved to get a hundred years to life in jail more than, than Cabeza did. And, um, and I'll, I'll, I remember when, when the Manhattan uh, case was over and I got a call from the detectives and they said, did you hear? And I said, no, what happened? He said, he got convicted. Got convicted for every one of the robberies in, in one fish, two fish, and looks like the judge is going to bang him. And the judge did. You imagine, Tom, 12 and a half to 25 for every robbery to run one after the other, after the other, not to run together. Mm-hmm. but to run concurrent uh, consecutively one uh, and then consecutive to the brooklyn case so so Cabeza later on um i guess it must have been around 2016 i had i was already i had already retired um Cabeza brought a, 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 a brought a, a lawsuit in federal court to try to get the case overturned saying that that his lawyer, his lawyer was incompetent. That his lawyer didn't ask the right questions. His lawyer didn't get the, all of the grand jury testimony. Or, or you know, typical. And he did it himself. It was not a lawyer who did it. And a federal judge shot him down. And uh, and that was the end. I don't think he ever appealed it. So um, so right now he's still doing his his life up in. I think he was in a a prison upstate New York, Sullivan County Correctional, which is where he was. Um, Marshall did his time, got out, got out a little early, too. Um, So that was it. But but I think I don't know this for a fact, so I better not say it. I'm not sure if if Marshall got into any kind of trouble later on, so I don't know. But in any event, um, Arnold Stover did get a break. He did. He did get a break. He didn't, um, but I'm not, I lost track of these guys. They never, you know, they never came back. Um, But one thing I did forget, and I wanted to make sure that you, your people know this. I haven't mentioned them since I talked about the actual event. Larry Collins. Larry Collins was working for Mr. Chan and had been working for him for a long time. Mr. Larry Collins was a really nice, decent man. Neighborhood guy, you know, a guy who, who went to work every day, worked hard, you know, got his pay, went home, that kind of thing. And he was in the wrong place at the wrong time because Stover, you know, tried to kill him, but, you know, paralyzed him for life. So I needed, even though he didn't identify, and he couldn't identify either uh, after we made the arrest of Cabeza and Stover, he couldn't identify them because of many, many reasons. I think because of the traumatic experience of the shooting plus his injuries. And at that point I didn't need him. But I did bring him in. I did need him for one thing. I needed him to tell the story of how this whole star, how did it, how did it start? What happened? I needed somebody to tell about talk about Cabeza coming in with the shield, you know. So he was a very, very important witness for me. You know how he testified? He was in a hospital bed yeah. still. And I and the hospital attendants wheeled him in on the bed into the courtroom. And he testified in a hospital bed in front of the jury in the well of the courtroom. And he testified very well for what I asked him, because I had prepared him. I had gone to the hospital, I'd seen him, you know, I'd done all the work. So I knew, and I figured that in my mind, who is not going to believe this guy, this poor guy who was in the wrong place at the wrong time, who, who suffered as much as he did. And now he's coming into court to tell you what he knows and uh, I figured, you know, nobody's gonna nobody's gonna doubt him, and they didn't, of course. It was a very, very dramatic, dramatic day. And and think about it: how many guys can say that <laughs> that they've had two witnesses—one guy in a wheelchair testifying in slower in in a uh, in a trial, and the other guy in a hospital bed—and I'm talking about Tom, not any, not a, a you know a small little bed, a, a full size hospital room bed that. That yeah. he was then with all of it, uh, you know the the the, the connections
1: uh, and the bags and
0: the wires and everything attached exactly. Well, so. I mean,
1: well, I mean, but that, yeah, it's you know, I could see where, I could see where, <clears throat> could see where uh, a naysayer would say, "Oh, this is just you know, this is just the drama of it, right?" But I mean, no, this is a guy who is literally paralyzed, like and is going through exactly. therapy, like he couldn't. It was like this or be equipped you know you couldn't but like it was either this or like video chat like it,
0: yeah and and you know um I was not going to as long as the hospital and Mr. Collins felt that he was number one the hospital felt that he wouldn't be further injured and he was up to doing it this way you think I was going to give up the opportunity to have this guy wheeled in on a hospital bed to testify to a very important part of this case—how this tri- how this murder developed—and to testify about him, what happened to you? Like, well, you know, he testified to all of his, you know, his injury. He testified to all of this surgery he'd been through. He testified to, you know, uh, all of the rehab he'd been in. What are you doing now? He was, you know, he basically was. Um, As far as I knew at that point, he was confined to that, uh, you know, to that bed. And I I don't know if he ever got out of it, but I was not passing up that opportunity to do some kind of, you know, video thing, because I think the jury had an absolute right to see what kind of damage this guy Cabeza and Marshall inflicted on this poor guy. And the only way to, to bring that home was to have the jury look at him, look at his and listen to him and look him right in the eye and 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 see that he's you know he's telling the truth. And I and this is what and I summed up on it this is what they did. They this is what they did to this guy, you know? I mean it wasn't um it, it wasn't a pop gun that they were using. It was a uh, you know uh, actually Marsh uh Cabeza had a 45. So 45 is pretty is a pretty big big um shell, you know, it's pretty big bullet. So uh, i wasn't i wasn 't going to pass that up, and uh, people wanted to, i don 't think nobody ever criticized me for it, but if they did, um, I would say first of all, he was an absolutely um, essential witness to tell the jury how this whole thing developed and um, and he was also essential in my mind to show what kind of damage these guys inflicted for by the way, you know what they got fifteen hundred bucks they got five hundred dollars a piece. For killing a person and paralyzing a person for life—that's what they got. So um, it was one of my—it uh, was one of the cases that I'm very proud of. I really am, and um, and it was um, it was very satisfying to have that jury come in and uh, and and say you know guilty. And um, I remember at the sentence too, the judge was um, the judge was outraged. Outraged, and he let he let him have it. I mean, before he sentenced him to 25 to life, he really did. So, um, of course, he appealed everything. Nothing, you know, nothing was overturned. It was, it was. Um, he's, I'm sure, still in jail right now. Uh, you know, so. Um, I hadn't heard anything about him getting paroled and I think you would have, and I can't imagine he would have got paroled first of all, he probably would have been horrible in front of a parole board. I can't imagine that he admitted to the parole board that you know that he did this because he he didn't admit it at all you know um so that is uh that's the story of uh of Eden liquors man sing Chan was the name of the owner of the store this lovely family and um and Larry Collins. Larry Collins, they, they're, they're all the victims, by the way, you know, the, Mr. Collins didn't have a family. That's another part of the story that was such, so heartbreaking is that he didn't have a family. He didn't have anybody, you know, to, to come in and, 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 and sit there at the trial and, you know, and give him, give him comfort. He didn't, he was, he was kind of a, a loner and, and he was not homeless. He had an apartment in the neighborhood there, but, um, but the others, you know, the others were, uh, I mean, that whole family had their their father taken away from them. Imagine a guy coming from China. After, I mean, China's a really tough place, as you well know. Comes here, makes his way here, and and he becomes, uh, you know, a successful businessman. And um, and then this this greedy animal, Cabeza, and his two cohorts decide that they're going to, you know, take this money away from him. And, um, they deserved what they got. That's all I can say.
1: Well, what I was going to say concerning bringing the guy in on the on the hospital bed is because otherwise, you know, you and I have been making light of it relatively, right? Like this fucking idiot, this motherfucker. He can't, you know. What are you stupid? Like pick up the shells. Like it's it's easy to go. You know, this guy's a moral. He's robbing every table at a at a at a upper upper west side restaurant in manhattan i mean truly how st- if, if you're gonna rob a restaurant rob a mcdonald's in bumfuck maryland don't go to the upper west side of goddamn manhattan Just, money that's what well, yeah yeah
0: that but, they were affluent uh you know well, affluent yeah. people
1: sure i mean i i get i get that but i mean i mean if you're gonna do that you gotta kill everyone there and you don't so i mean but what the point i'm getting at is it's easy to point at this guy and go what a moron what What that doesn't show is, you know, it's like, um, you know, it's like terrorists in the Middle East. And every once in a while you hear about, you know, someone at an ISIS training camp and they accidentally detonate their vest. And it's easy to laugh and go, these fucking morons, they just blew themselves up. But whether it's ISIS or al-Qaeda or the Taliban or Boko Haram or Hezbollah or whatever, you go, sure, we can say that. But then you also go watch a video of 9-11. Or the shooting at the Bataclan in, in Paris in 2015. So, with this guy, it's oh this moron, he shot up this place, he did this, that, the other thing. But it's also like bringing the guy in the hospital bed. Like th- there is a there is a reality to this. You know, it's not just well yeah you know, yeah not you, you dipshit sure dipshit. Here's a guy who's never going to walk again. Like in yeah. here are two here are two kids that are you know ch- children of him, adults, but. Who you come in flash a badge and they both go, you know, scared stiff because their dad was murdered in cold blood. You have to do that. You have to bring it in and say this is the very real thing about this.
0: Well, you know, absolutely. And you know, it was that um, he didn't. He took Mr. Chan's action, uh, Mr. Chan's life, but he also, in a lot of ways, took Mr. Collins' life away too. Because one hundred percent, Collins is basically the way that he's going to be for the rest of his life. And, um, uh, all for, you know, for greed, for greed. And, 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 but if, you know, if you could have seen this guy, Cabeza testify, you know, you, you'd say, yeah, I could see that guy wanting to do all of this stuff. I could see, cause he was, ar- I mean, the arrogance, he, he flashed, you know, after he did this, he, he got another car and it was a flashy, I forgot what car it was, a flashy car. And he would drive around in it. And, and, um, I, I remember I, I, I took a couple of shots at him on the stand and asked him if he's, if he, what's his, uh, you know, did you buy it outright? Did you, do you owe the money? How, how, how behind are you on, on those things? You know, that kind of stuff. So I, I he, to me was, um, was not worth Anything. I mean, he just had no value to me as a human being after doing, doing what he did. And um, and you lock those kind of people away in cages forever, as far yeah. as I'm concerned, because the only thing that they could do is cause more destruction. And um, you know, it's like it's he, like he was the devil had come to Brooklyn and and gone into Eden Liquors that night and and did what he did. That's how evil this guy was, you know. Yeah. So. Um,
1: but there's there's also like uh, and I think I've said this to, I said this to you before is there is a beauty in in taking the worst of the worst yeah i'm putting him in a cage forever right Sure, yeah. death is scary but death comes to us all death comes to you and me and it comes to the guys in the cages like being paralyzed for life he's very much paralyzed for life he is now in a oh, cage what a sentence for, a sentence for, of
0: yeah. yeah
1: so it's like there is again just like the guy being shot and him also being in a wheelchair, there is this weird, and I say it lightly and relatively, because we're talking about people dying, but there is a sort of poetic beauty to it. Where, yep. it, I mean, where like karma really just comes around and just like a Mike Tyson
0: haymaker. just. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And you know, if for anybody who was anybody who thought, and, and I'm not saying that I talked to any of these people, but if for anybody who might've thought after the conviction that, you know, Vecchione did something he shouldn't have done. That guy didn't deserve it. He was a cop. He's working out. To then have the one fish, two fish people say, six months later, he held up everybody in a restaurant. And and to me, that was, you know, I didn't need it, but it really showed everybody what kind of person yeah. Cabeza was. And if you don't, you don't know, put him away. Please go see yeah. your path. Yeah.
1: So if you don't put them away, it's going to keep happening
0: there's no happening. doubt about it look he did he did it it is this is the proof of it he did Eden liquors and he went and did this this uh, first, you know robbery days. and I'm sure that there were other things he did that i didn't even get we didn't even hear about i'm sure of it so you know he um and he thought that that badge was his you know passport to um you know to 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 whatever it is he wanted to do freedom maybe because he just went ahead and and dishonored it totally. Um, so it was a, um, it was, it was, it was quite a case. And, um, and, 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 again, I say it one more time, I give a lot of credit to the detectives who worked on it because I am sure, I am sure that during the course of the investigation, they were taking a lot of shit from their colleagues, you know, um, uh, how could you do this to one of our own? How could this happen? How could that, you know, that that's the way cops are. And, um, it didn't make a difference to uh you know, to those guys. And they they did what they had to do and they did it they did the right thing. And um you know, they 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 deserved the medal, quite frankly, as far as I was concerned. Yeah. So
1: um Yeah.
0: But yeah. Anyway, so
1: I just I just realized this might be the longest podcast we've done. I don't think we've ever done an hour and a half before. An hour and a half. Right? I, I didn't realize that. But
0: yeah, no, well, just side note, yeah. You know, and and I sent you a couple of other stories. You might oh, yeah. want to. Oh yeah, no, we're That's gonna go cool.
1: through. We're gonna go.
0: Those through. are gonna be those are gonna be long ones too, and they're good ones. That's, they're good
1: ones. Oh no, I don't say that as like a critique. It was just more of like. Oh uh, no, I know. I glanced I know. at the clock and was like, huh. All yeah. right. Um, but yeah, Mr. Mike Vecchione. Um, obviously, uh, the the first episodes we did, I couldn't possibly find what number they are. I think back in the two hundreds. For anyone listening, you want to go find them. We went over your books, which are chock full of these stories: Crooked Brooklyn, Friends of the Family, and also Episode 18 with Bruce Sackman. You helped write behind the murder curtain. Murder curtain, and yeah. uh, that's—I mean, that's—that. But oh, did write, not did, helped write. Right? Yeah. Oh, you know what I mean. Don't don't yeah. making me look like an idiot now. Um, but. So, for anyone listening, if you want to go grab those books, um, Crooked Brooklyn is on Audible, and Friends of the Family, and uh, Behind the Murder Curtain are on, on Kindle. You can get your phone to read them to you. Just look up on YouTube. So, whether it's an audiobook or not, you can turn it into an audiobook. And then, as well as all the short stories, those are also in the description. and. Mr. Vecchione will be back on here for more stories and as well as you are writing a book which comes out in spring or summer?
0: Yeah, in the spring. Homicide is my business is the name of it. So yeah, it'll be in the spring. It's coming out in the spring. I, I actually approved the cover the other day. So it's yeah. really a, um, it's quite a, it's a night they did a great job, the publishers, you know, so. And, and Tom and I'm writing now, oh, I'm yeah. about 15 chapters into a new book and believe it or not, what I mentioned before about the devil—it's—it's—it is. I'm calling it a true crime fantasy. What yeah. it is is I'm using my my cases, um, but I'm tying them together with this kind of fantasy of the devil coming to Brooklyn and being the instigator. for cases that create social upheaval, like there's one with the murder of a cop. There's another with um, with, uh, with a with um, uh, a murder of a housewife in the midst of of upheaval in a neighborhood, uh, ra- uh, racial upheaval. So, um, so I'm, I'm about, um, taking my time I'm about 15, 14 or 15 chapters in. So, um, yeah, we, but it's going to be a long book. So we'll hopefully I'll get it published. I'm writing it. I haven't sold anything yet, but I have somebody who is, I have a publisher who's interested. So she wanted to see what the first part of the book was about I'm waiting to hear back from her and I'm going to keep going. Even I have to
1: publish it myself. Yeah, I was going to say is, yeah, who, who gives a shit? I mean, obviously, you give a shit. It's, you know, none of this stuff's free. But I, I said that, I think I said the last time we talked, is no, I like that. I, I like seeing you kind of step outside your, you know, your your comfort zone and, and not you specifically, Mike, anyone. I mean, I try to do that with this podcast. I try to talk to people who I know are going to run circles around me because it just, there's no, nothing bad ever comes from growth. I mean, aside from cancer, but, you know, nothing bad ever comes from growth. Right. And, and that is I, I do like that idea of you writing that fan. Well, because it makes me think and it's I fucking hate that movie because it's so goddamn scary. But exorcism of exorcism of Emily Rose when they're getting the d- demon out of her in the barn and they're doing the exorc It's absolutely terrifying. There's no reason to watch it. This movie is I watched this movie by myself in the frat house. I was talking about earlier over Thanksgiving or Christmas break. Everyone had gone home. Except for me. And I decided I sat in the fret house, I turned out all the lights, and then I ripped a bong and got uncomfortably high and oh, watched boy. Exorcism of Emily Rose. To this day, I can never rationalize why I've ever. D- I rarely smoke pot, I never watch scary movies. F- Something possessed me to watch Exorcism of Emily Rose high there as a kite. By myself in a dark frat house, and the one thing that's seared into my memory from that—that—that that, that was a traumatizing Thanksgiving break. It's about Thanksgiving twenty ten. Um, but they're doing the exorcism in the barn, and it's the priest is like saying, "Like, say your names, reveal yourself." I guess that's how you get the demon to come out or whatever. The point of this whole frazzle brains. This is why I have Mike talk because when I start talking, within two minutes, it's it's already just gone off into the weeds.
0: Well, well my. <laughs> My the way that I have, am portraying the, the demon at this point is not as overt as that. Sure. It's more an insidious. Like um, of More of an insidious character, and 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 does v- different things that uh, in the in in the within the stories. Now the stories, the crimes that I am using are true crimes. Real, yeah. they're, they're cases of mine, but I am embellishing, and I'm adding. You know, I'm adding this this uh, this, this demon to, uh, to it. It was quite frankly, Tom, and I'll I'll be very candid with you. It was, um, I was told by several, uh, agents, book agents that short stories, true crime short stories are not necessarily favored by people who are true crime fans. They seem to want more long form and that you write a story, it ends and they, they, they feel that it's much better to if I figured out a way to link all of the stories together and to make it a continuous story. And I, and, and I had come up with this, uh, my, my ex partner and I, my, and I say ex, my former partner who's now deceased Jerry, who wrote, wrote the other books with me. Uh, we had this idea for a TV show a long time ago. And, um, so I resurrected the idea and it, the, the name I'm calling it now fallen angel. Um, for obvious reasons, but the prosecutor in the case, um, who is who is recruited by a secret government agency to take these cases and to and to become the the lead in them, is kind of a guy that uh, the law enforcement community has kind of shunned, and and he became a pariah because he convicted a very well respected agent, federal agent, for for murders and, and they kind of almost boot him out of the profession, but he's good. He's good in a lot of ways. And he's a, he's a talented guy. And, um, and this agency through a friend of his recruits him to, to be their, their lead. Cause they know from other parts of the country and other parts of the world that the devil is behind the chaos that's been happening in, in other places. And, um, and and that's that's where I got the idea and I, to link them together. So um, we'll see. I don't I don't know how it'll turn out. I I don't know if people will laugh at me when I when I finally present it. But don't
1: first of all fuck everybody else. Doesn't matter what anybody thinks. Who cares? <laughs> um, but no, I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome. Your point point of of what I was saying earlier is when they get the demon out. What the demon does is it like names itself. But what it's naming is they kind of tie it into like real history. It's the demon behind like there's one demon comes out speaking German and that was like Hitler. And there's another yeah. one that took on like Nero and then right. Judas, you know, the worst who kills Jesus or betrays Jesus. Right. But it's, right. through, I thought that was kind of, it's like, Oh, here's this sort of like ancient force. And it's like, it just inhabits people and it drives these things. But, Yeah, man. No, go out and write it, and write
0: it. You know, go all in. Yeah, gives a shit. Anybody thinks. You know, I got to. I got to point you to something else. One of the things I I had done some work for a um, for a very large um, group that was involved in the in rehabilitation, and forever they've been working on this forever. And there are some famous people who went into this this place. Um, for, for rehab, but I got to know the the people that, that run it through Jerry and, um, and they hired us as consultants and, um, and they, Jerry and I got asked to go to Venice three or four years ago to be judges at the Venice Film Festival, because this group gave away one of the awards, one of the film awards was sponsored by this group. So they needed, he had to provide jurors, they called them. And we had to go to all these films and and ultimately come up with the one that we thought should, should win the award. Well, one of the films was a documentary by William Friedkin, who was behind um, um, the uh, last uh, picture show. Last, uh, I think it was last picture show. And he was also behind the, he was the director of The Exorcist, the Linda Blair, the The Exorcist. Yeah. And his documentary was about the um the church's exorcism uh office so to speak where the priests actually perform exorcisms and the he took the cameras into several of the legitimate real exorcisms uh, performed by this priest um forgot now where he was from he might have been from from rome but that kind of i use from what i learned from that documentary which was Quite frankly, scary as hell. Talk about, that. you know, your thing. But but when the real thing happens, you know, you see it. And um, and it were you know, you you do leave and you say, you know, is that could that be true? But but Friedkin is a guy who, you know, I don't think he would put his his reputation on the line. He's such a big man in Hollywood that he would, you know, go and, and become a joke by, by putting this thing out. Um, and anyway, so what I what I did was I wrapped into this this book that I'm doing is that the way that, that the Vatican gets the idea that the devil has, you know, is behind some of this chaos is that, and we're talking about major chaotic kind of situations is that one of the priests in the Vatican office of exorcisms starts to do research. And he learns that when these chaotic events and crimes have taken place, that there were exorcisms uh, conducted after the crimes had been taken place. And the idea I wrote was that the devil had, you know, the people who were responsible, the actual puller of the trigger or the stabber realized that he was possessed or she was possessed and went to, to be, to have this exorcism done. And he does this research and he knows that in Brooklyn and realizes that the cases that he's been seeing in Brooklyn before the, the prosecutor gets involved it has to be the devil because it has all of the earmarks of these other these other cases and um, and he, they go to the federal government and they get the president to get a justice department to get the justice department to listen to the Vatican and they come up with this committee of pro, uh, justice department pro, uh, um, investigators and politicians and um, and the Vatican priests. And um, and this is how they come up with recruiting the prosecutor in the case to do the Brooklyn stuff. So so that's that's the background. So, I
1: love it. I don't keep writing it. Who gives a shit? With yeah, I'm going, I'm, going doing it. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm um, going to. And yeah, to cover all
0: cover all my bases. all. there you go. I'll... And the fact that you haven't <laughs> the fact that you haven't laughed me out of the room gives me gives me uh, no, gives me courage well, to continue. So
1: no, no, no. It's so um, <clears throat> my friend who's now been on this podcast f- probably 50 times, Roger Williams, he's Ro- – Roger's about twice my age, lives in New Orleans. He's an author. He wrote a sci-fi book called The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect. It's my favorite It's my favorite book. I read it several years ago, and then when I started this podcast, I was like, I wonder if I could get this guy on. Um, but he wrote a lot of stuff that he never ended up publishing, and he used, he used my podcast as his – as his publisher, so he'll come on. He'll just we've done it now like so many times where he'll choose a book of his and just we'll just go through it over the course of several weeks, and he'll just you know read from it from an hour, and that's now how it's published. And he has fans who have loved his work because he originally published in like right. 1990. Well, so what I'm telling you is, dude, my podcast is yours. If no one wants to publish it, right. use my podcast. I don't give a shit.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, the first the first case that I'm doing and when I'm in the middle now, the first case that the prosecutor knowingly is involved in what this what this group does is they kind of test them there's a case that he is assigned to and they realize after this guy's assigned to it that it may be the devil behind this thing and they don't tell him because they're testing him to see whether or not he has the metal to you know to handle it and he's very successful and once he he wins that they then approach him and say this is what we would like you to do. And um, and then he... So the first case that he uh, does on his own is is the murder of a police officer and um, an off-duty police officer under... And, it, and it, Tom, I'll just say this to you, and I don't want to spoil anything, but I told you this case that we just talked about, Cabeza, had a lot of evidence. The case that I'm talking about now, this cop killing case where the cop was the un- unfortunate victim, had enough evidence, in my opinion... To convict three and in, in for three separate cases, that's how much evidence I have, and I won't tell you what the you know what happened because that's part of what I'm writing. But when we get to talking about this, I'll, I'll remember to to remind you about this conversation today, and we'll talk about we'll talk about all of the evidence and what happened. And I'm sure that you're going to um, you're going to like it because it ties in with a lot of what's going on today politically and in. You know in the streets and uh and and how certain individuals and media people handle certain cases and how they look upon certain cases and don't look upon cases of you know that are similar but with different participants you know what I'm saying in terms of 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 the media so that's that's what this and and this is way before any of this this yeah, stuff
1: is all real shit. now so
0: yeah. yeah so anyway that's um that's, that's hopefully coming down the pike. I'm going to, now that the winter is coming in and there's very little to do, I'm going to have a lot more time to, to write other than publicizing murder. Homicide is my business. Cause I'll probably have to get involved with, with that. So, um, Hell yeah. that's it. So, well, thank you again for having me, my friend. And, um,
1: as always dude, and we'll do it again, as always, we'll do a okay. million more. I can't wait for homicide is my business. And, uh, as well as everything else you're writing and, um, yeah, man, my, my podcast is your platform. Fuck publishers. Thank you. This, is, Thank this you. is yours. I don't give a shit. We'll do them all the time. Fuck everybody. Okay. Fuck everybody else. We'll do it here. I don't <laughs> care. We'll have the author himself reading it. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the gold standard for audible books anyway. Is when the author reads it. So fuck it, we'll have it here. But, um, yeah, man, all the books I mentioned already earlier will be in the description as always. Mr. Vecchione will be on here again in what's well, December. So I'd probably say around this time next month in January. And, um, Yeah, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having Uh, me, Tom. I'll text you. Merry Christmas. You as well. And uh, I will text you when this one's up and I'll text you so that we can schedule another one. And if I don't do that by the end of today, text me this evening because I will have forgotten. So. I will, but we'll do. And that. Merry
0: Christmas to all the listeners and all of your viewers, and uh, and a, a happy and great New Year to everybody
1: and as well. And a, absolutely, a, a very Merry Christmas to everybody listening. To this. Only got only got a couple more episodes, and then I'm going to be doing two weeks off. I'm going home to see my parents and uh, turn this whole thing off for a couple weeks and Good. reset. Well, my brain. I will. Merry Christmas, thanks, Mike. Thanks. Merry Christmas to all the listeners. Till next time, brother. Take care, Mike. Thanks, Take care. Recording yep.
0: stop.